Morning, church. Thanks for your prayers. Last week, we, uh, I was, we weren't here. We were, had the privilege of um, being down um, in, I guess, uh, Royal National Park, is it? In, near Cronulla, I think. Anyway, uh, we were down there with a, uh, a church friend of ours, uh, Stanmore Baptist, and it was great. I had an opportunity to um, uh, be the keynote speaker, and, and the theme was missions. So the idea of global missions and um, 22, 23, I guess if you can count me, 23 nationalities represented there, which is really cool. That's Sydney for you, right? Um, very international, but we, we were specifically focusing on the importance of spreading the gospel, uh, not only here in our neighborhoods, but across the globe. So uh, thanks for your prayers. If, if you did pray for that, I, I'm grateful. Glad to be back though as we dive back into Matthew and talk about faith, right? Nowadays, when you hear someone described as a person of faith, or you, know, you might hear someone say, oh man, that gal, she is a woman of faith. Or that, that, that bloke, he's a man of faith. That could mean something significant, or it could mean nothing at all. Usually, it's a way to describe a person with a particular commitment to a religion or to spirituality. A person whose mind and worldview are ordered by a certain set of beliefs. Right? That's usually what we mean. That person's a person of faith. They, they have a worldview that's religious or spiritual, and, it's, and that worldview thus dictates, shapes, colors how they live their life. Only problem with that, though, is every single human being has a set of beliefs that they live by, if they call themselves irreligious or spiritual or not. There, there is no neutral worldview. Now, when we look at the term faith as it's used in the scriptures, when we look at faith in the Bible, we soon discover that faith is not a substance in itself. Faith is not something that you could grab a shovel and dig out of the ground. Faith is not something that you can grab off an like an apple, off an apple tree. Faith is not generic. True faith actually has an object. It's not objectless. Faith, as the Bible defines it, lands somewhere, and that is faith in none other than the Lord. Not faith in some generic deity, but in the one true and living God. Now, when we contrast that idea with, say, Buddhism, let's think Buddhism for a second. To understand Buddhism is to understand a way to get out of this world uh, and into nothingness. Buddhism is trying to get out of belief, to have a mind that reaches mindlessness, absolute emptiness or Nirvana, that's what, if you're in Buddhism, or if you've studied Buddhism, that's, that's what they are striving for. Whereas the goal of Christianity is to have a mind that knows and worships the creator and is filled with passion for his glory. So when we talk about faith, specifically faith in the Bible, we are not talking about some exercise of the will where we force ourselves into having a generic belief like faith and faith itself. Biblical faith isn't vague or ambiguous. It's clear 
and solid. The topic of today's passage, the theme that pops up again and again, I don't know if you caught it when Jeanette just read for us, is this concept, is this idea of faith. So as we unpack today's text, I want us to capture three things. First, a distressed dad. Second, a daunting denouncement. And third, a daring declaration. My preaching professor would be so happy if he heard that alliteration there. A a distressed dad in verses 14 through 16, a daunting denouncement in verse 17, and finally, a daring declaration in verses 19 through 21. Faith circles around all of these points. The theme of faith just keeps popping up again and again as we look at this distressed dad, as we hear from Jesus, this shocking, daunting denouncement, and lastly, this daring declaration that Christ makes about faith. So that's where we're headed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather around your word now. We do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Have you ever had a mountaintop experience in your Christian pilgrimage? Maybe it was the day that you were baptized, or perhaps you went to Katoomba and you, you spent a weekend at a Christian conference, or or maybe you attended a powerful evangelistic crusade. Some of you went to the Billy Graham crusade way back when, before my time, but many of you still reflect upon that. Maybe as a youth you went to some camp and you had this, this experience this mountaintop experience, so to speak, that, that energized you. you. At that moment, you felt that you could conquer the world for Jesus. But, unfortunately, sooner than later, something happened which caused that mountaintop experience to quickly descend downhill. You know, Moses, in the Old Testament, he had an experience like this, Right? God's people were rescued out of bondage, out of Egypt, right? They, they go, cross, the, God splits the sea, they cross through it, they get on the other side, and then God is going to speak to Moses. So Moses heads off the mountain for this mountaintop experience where he is talking with God to get God's law for God's new covenant people. But what happens? He's all excited. He comes down from the mountaintop and the people are worshiping a golden cow of all things. And so he's shocked. His mountaintop experience came crashing down. It's interesting, when we look at Matthew 17, it it, it seems that history is repeating itself. The disciples had just been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at that last week. They've had a foretaste of Christ, his future glory. But as they descend from the summit, they come to a very, very different scene. 
there's this massive group of people, a kid who's literally out of control, a distressed dad, and the disciples are there with looks on their faces of both embarrassment and a sense of helplessness. What's going on? Well, come with me to verse 14. So right after this mount of transfiguration, they came down to the crowd, and notice a man came up to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. What a contrast. <laughs> this scene has just shifted from one extreme to the other. The 16th century Italian painter Raphael has a famous painting that you can look up here on the screen. It depicts this passage that we see, this contrast, because um, you, you don't just see one scene, but two. This is called the transfiguration. Uh, what, what do you notice here? If you, if you take a look, as you can see at the top half of the painting, it, that part is filled with light and glory because it is the picture of the transfiguration, right? But the lower half of the picture is filled with darkness and gloom. It's a striking image. The disciples who were with Jesus on the mountain have now descended into the real world, as we call it. And as they do, what do we have in this scene here? It's, a, it's an appalling scene. It's dark, like that painting, like Raphael, was, I think he captured quite well. You see a desperate father, a helpless boy who has seizures and suffers greatly. Can you imagine the horror of being a dad, of being a father, and watching your son driven by some inner pathology to throw himself into the fire and into the water, trying to kill himself, be it through burning or through drowning? Feel the weight of that. It's interesting in verse 15, Matthew uses a rare verb to describe the boy's condition. It literally reads that he is moonstruck. I'm pretty sure no one uses the term moonstruck today, right? It's not like you're going to be, if you work down in Sydney or if you ever catch bu the bus or the train and you see a, I don't know, how do I say this nicely, quite an interesting fellow on the bus and you're kind of like, whoa, geez, you know? It's not like, you know, you're going to arrive at work and say, oh man, there was just this really crazy person on the bus or on the train, and then your coworkers are going to say, oh, well, hello, they were moonstruck. Right? You're, you're just the, you, that's not the language that you hear people use today. Uh, they may say, well, that bloke sounds like a lunatic. Right? Ironically, that's the same root word that Matthew uses. The word lunar Essentially, it was believed that the lunar body, the moon, had the potential to drive people mad. Bear in mind, though, the problem isn't just physical, it's spiritual. It's not just the physical problems that's worrying. This isn't simply a story about a boy with self-destructive behavior. 
Behind it all is demonic oppression. It's interesting though, think about this. The exact correlation between his demon possession and the other diseases is not specified. Was Satan given the power to bring about these physical symptoms? Or did Satan take an opportunity with these symptoms to afflict the boy? Make sense? We're not, we're not really told. What we do know, what we can see in the text, is the father is justifiably stressed. Which is why he seeks out Jesus looking for help. But imagine, put yourself in his shoes for a moment. When he arrives there, how disappointing. Where's the Lord? Oh, he's up on the mountain. Ah, oh, what? I've heard that he can heal people. Well, and then he turns to his closest associates and he says, well, boys, what do you reckon? Can you have a go? I mean, you've been with him all this time. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got this, we got this. Wah, 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 right? You can't fake that one. Some of these faith healers out there, you know, the Lord's telling me that he just heals you of a hernia that you didn't even know that you had. I mean, how could you even indicate that? Right? Phony charlatans that you see out there on their healing services and all that stuff. Now, you can't, can't, can't fake this one. <laughs> the boy's still flopping all over the place. It's not, what happened? What's going on? Look, look at verse 16 again. Look what he says. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Spoiler alert. The boy is healed by Jesus. But once again in Matthew's gospel, the miracle itself takes a back seat with the focus being on something else. In this case, it's on faith. Do you hear what I said by that? You get get what I mean? The miracle itself is actually not the focus. The miracle itself is secondary. It, It takes a back seat. The focus, the spotlight is on faith, or in this case, lack thereof. Remember this distressed dad brought his son to the disciples, but nothing happened. They were incompetent to heal the boy, which is a bit strange since Jesus had already given them power to cast out demons. Look at what he already said in Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and notice, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Jesus gave them authority to do what? To cast them out. A few verses later, he said this, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse, this is given to the disciples, cleanse lepers, do what? Cast out demons. Jesus has already empowered them for this task. So what's The problem, what's the hang-up? Simple, a lack of faith. Not on the part of the dad, mind you. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered with coming to Jesus and his disciples. No, lack of faith, it's the disciples who lack the faith to accomplish what Jesus had already empowered them to do. As one commentator puts it, their lack of success stems not from strict incapacity, but from not exercising an authority they in fact possess. That's why Jesus gives this daunting denouncement that describes this 
generation. In verse 17, he says, and Jesus answered, oh, faithless, That's being, that just means without faith, literally, it reads there, oh, faithless and twisted, or you could say perverted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Why did Jesus respond like this? Did you ever imagine Jesus talking like this? You, you can feel the emotion there. You can feel the exasperation in his voice. I mean, that's not the Jesus we picture. Oh, how long am I to put up with you guys? You guys are just wearing me out. That's not the Jesus we picture, right? What, why, why, why give this daunting denouncement? I mean, clearly the Lord's not some, like, he, he was not a fly-off-the-handle, hot-tempered bloke. So what's going on? Well, in spite of the miracles and teaching of Jesus, stacks of people didn't place their faith in him as the Messiah. They had a twisted or perversion of exactly who he was. They had a distorted picture of Christ. And the Lord then pulls no punches to properly diagnose who they are and what they're thinking. They are without faith. They are twisted. The other thing to ask here, though, is, is who exactly is Jesus addressing in this rebuke? I, I don't think he's talking directly to the dad. You know, the dad goes up and he goes, oh, exhibit A here. It's plural, actually, when he says, bring him to me. He's talking to a group of people there. So is he talking to the crowds? Is that who he's addressing, the faithless and twisted generation? Or, or is he talking to disciples? Well, I actually think it's a bit of both, to tell you the truth. His, his rebuke encompasses everyone that's there, the whole generation, if indirectly. He's casting a mournful eye over his disciples who have, by their show of little faith, really regressed to the level of the crowds. And it's at this juncture that the disciples turn to Jesus. They pull him aside and they want to know why they have failed to cast this demon out. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. See, the disciples are not devoid of faith. We know that. They have faith in Christ, but their faith is not functioning properly. I mean, we can't possibly know at that moment, when they approached Jesus and they had a failed attempt to perform an exorcism, what was going on in their minds? We don't, we don't know. Perhaps at that moment, they, they began to treat their healing ministry, so to speak, as kind of like mechanical. Just repeat these words. Do these steps. And, and then that's a guarantee that the demon's going to come out. Maybe they've become just too dependent upon their own gifts and abilities. 
instead of trusting in God. That's why Jesus points them in a different direction. He says, no, 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 you need to trust in my power to do this. You can't trust in your own selves. You can't trust in some mechanics. You can't trust in like a secret formula that you just repeat. You need to have faith. And here comes this daring declaration. I mean, isn't it, isn't it incredible what he says? Look, he, he says, he, he takes the smallest seed of that day, a mustard seed, you can you know, hold a hundred of them in your palm easy or more. He says, if, if your faith, if it was just that small, you could say to that mountain, move and it would be gone. Faith that can move mountains, right? Now, this was a common metaphor in Jewish literature for doing something seemingly impossible. Paul actually uses this metaphor. He says this. Check it out here. He says in 1 Corinthians, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and notice, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So are, when Jesus says here, if you have faith that can move mountains, are we to take this literally? Like as in, are we to assume that this means that we can change geography? I was going to say the Rocky Mountains, but that may not have stuck here very well. Someone give me a mountain range in Australia. Snowy mountains. Are those mountains? No. <laughs> Yeah. The Blue Mountains. Are those mountains? Yeah, so, um, yeah. So, are we, are, does, are we to believe that this is actually literal language here? It's interesting if you study through the book of Acts, there are some amazing things that happen. In fact, it, it says that even if someone could get a hold of, of a handkerchief, that, that that person could be healed, right? I, I, I'm reminded of, in the book of Acts of the seven sons of Sceva, which sounds like a, a, a lame rock garage band or something like that, right? The seven sons of Sceva, they, they try to take the mechanics and the, and the power of Jesus' name to cast out this demon, right? It's in Ephesus, and, and, and they're walking around, and they're, they're getting quite popular, and um, they're like an, you know, an exorcist firm or whatever you want to say, and, and, and they, they rock up to this house, and, and there's this demon-possessed guy, and, and they say, um... And uh, in, in, in the name of uh, Jesus, um, wh whom Paul preaches, uh, get out. I love this. I lo you'll read, if you're in a growth group, you'll read this this week and discuss it. And the demon turns and goes, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard about, but who the heck are you? <laughs> and, and he bashes them, and they run out of the house and run through the streets bleeding and naked. I mean, that would make, that would make the headline of the newspaper, Right? And, and the point there is, these guys are operating in a way that's mechanical, not by faith. You don't just repeat these words and then so, poof, you have magic. The, the language that Jesus is using here is figurative language. It's powerful language, but it's figurative. I mean, think about it. If you cut verse 20 here, if you cut this verse out of this passage, cut it out of the New Testament, and paste it onto a greeting card. It's, it might sound encouraging, but it's just, it's just straight up confusing. If all you have is Matthew 17, 20, 
and your theology, you will conclude that Christianity comes down to a miracle working power where faith is something you need to sort of bulk up on. God is a puppet who is waiting on your spiritual prowess, waiting on your spiritual ability. You just need to believe and pray and bang, it'll happen. God, God is, he's really some universal force who can be tapped into like magic or like Star Wars. If you just, if you just believe, something's gonna happen. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what he's saying at all. He says, look, you can say to this mountain, move from here and it, and it will happen. Anywhere in the book of Acts does this happen, by the way? Isn't it interesting how Paul picks up on the metaphorical language and he says, if I had faith, I mean, if anyone could say, blue mountains, go, right? We'd hear about it, it'd be in the book of Acts, it'd be like, I don't know, Paul? <laughs> then if we just go outside of the scriptures and just study church history, nowhere do we have these things. But what is impossible? What is impossible? Well, belief itself, isn't it? Your non-Christian coworker, your non-Christian friend, your non-Christian spouse, your non-Christian fill-in-the-blank will never come to Jesus. They will never place their faith in Jesus. It is impossible. God has to come to them in grace and grant them faith. That's a miracle. That, that is a miracle. People will say, oh, I, I've been critiqued for some of my theology, so to speak. And if people say, oh, well, you don't believe in miracles. Absolutely. Every time a sinner repents, that is a miracle. That is the greatest miracle. You know, I could go stand in, in, in front of the Blue Mountains today, right? We could all drive down there and I could say, move, right? Now, I'm probably, I would definitely make the news. Marvel comic would, you know, the movies would ca cast me in a, in, you know, in a second be pretty cool, but then eventually I'd die and all the magic and all the excitement would be done. And this whole generation here that's on this earth would all stand before God, still guilty in sin. The most important thing is that you're right with God. And that can only happen by faith in Christ. And that can only happen if the sovereign grace of God so moves in a sinner's heart and draws them to himself. That is a miracle. That is faith. And friends, we need to pray and trust in the grace of God. We need to actively pray for that sinner to repent. Pray that the Lord draws them to himself. But we can trust at the end of the day, it's not our amount of faith. So what if you're having a bad day? Is all the rest of that stuff going to be short-circuited? It's the kindness, it's the goodness of God that we can lean on. This is not a verse, this is not a passage that you guilt someone into who has cancer. I have sat next to people dying on their bedside, really distressed that their parents didn't pray for them or have the faith, and that's why, or their brother or their sister or whoever, didn't have enough faith, and that's why they're dying of cancer. That is hogwash. That is a lie. Some charlatan sold them that bill of goods that's false. 
That is not what this passage is saying. We need to understand that this text has a context. We need to see what the whole Bible teaches about any given subject, you see? And so please, don't don't hold on to this verse and bury it down into your heart as if somehow you can just tap into this faith thing as a substance itself. And God is sort of coerced at that point to heal you. Look, if, if you're a Christian, the Bible says, you know what it does say, to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. That's to, to part is to be with Christ, which is far better than anything in this world. And if the Lord did heal you, and he can, but if you did, what, you live another 20 years, 30, 40 at the most? You still die. You know, th- this, this verse Think of all the Christians being persecuted. Think of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, copping it big time. Is it, why, well, do they just not have enough faith? I repel these tanks in Jesus' name. Putin, go away, go away. Good luck, good luck. Jesus said there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars until his return, okay? This is nonsense. This is, abso- this is absolutely insane. We need to understand, we need to understand what faith is and what it's not. I could go on another hour, but I won't. And so, friends, I hope that you're already getting a better picture, you see, a balanced picture of biblical faith. And I pray that the Lord grants you faith if you're sitting here amongst us. Maybe you had this byproduct Christianity. Maybe even coming, do you know what I mean by that? What, what is, what, what, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? How, how can I be blessed? How, how can my life improve? Maybe that's why all these people are sitting around here because this kind of helps their life. Look, you can you turn to faith in Christ you be, you're so that your sins may be wiped out. That's the most important thing. But in this life, you will have suffering. You will. But you can trust in the almighty, unchangeable, perfect God who is gracious and loving. He is, he is worth your trust and having that faith and that belief in him. That's the most important faith we could ever have. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you again for an opportunity to look at your word and to be exhorted and encouraged. We do pray, Lord, that there's some here that haven't turned to you, Lord, that you would grant them faith. We trust, Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are good. And we do pray for those of us here, sitting here, Lord, that th- this might be just a, a, a new way of looking at this. This might just be a, something that feels kind of flattening or maybe, I don't know, challenging. And, and maybe just like uh, we need to reorient the way that we read your word and, and reorient the way that we think about you and what faith truly is. And so Spirit, we pray that you would do that deep in the hearts of your people that are here. Help us to submit to you and to what your word actually teaches. We pray these things for your glory, in Christ's name. Amen. If you are here and by faith you have turned to Christ and by obedience to him and what he lays out in the Great Commission, you have been